Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. Hello and welcome. Today I'm going to be talking about emotional resilience with a really special guest and assistant principal. Now we are going to keep this podcast anonymous today so that we can speak really openly about what's happening in education at the moment. So thank you so much for giving up your time for me on this Saturday morning. It's really appreciated. No problem at all. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, what you do and why you've given up your time today? Yes, so I'm assistant principal at a secondary school where we have students aging from the range 11 to 19. And I am in charge of a data assessment, the timetable. I was last year part of also leading on health and safety and then also have responsibilities around things like staff wellbeing cover of staff who were off absent so it's quite a full but very sort of standard data person role I suppose in a secondary school and I've got two children who are amazing and totally kept me going and yeah so that's pretty much me. I love the fact that you've just said you've got two children, they're amazing and have kept you going because actually, before we say anything else, I completely resonate with that. When days are difficult, I look to my children as my role models at the moment, I have to say, because they're so resilient and they are keeping going themselves. Yeah, it's been really interesting, actually. I was talking to a colleague and we we looked at the students in front of us the other day in, in our provision for our vulnerable and key worker children. And we were having a conversation where we said that we thought that they they would be a bit like a war generation and obviously not in the same sort of leagues of depravity and what they have to go through, but in a different way and how resilient they would become. And that as people, I sort of started talking about my nana, who was in her 20s during the Second World War. And my memories of my nana are the fact that she could make anything out of very little food. And every cake she ever made only ever had one egg in it because of rationing. And it's it sort of stuck with her for her entire life. Your and nana sounds awesome. Oh, honestly, she was so amazing. And she could just make anything out of, she could just fix things and just get on with it. She just could get on with it. And I was talking to this colleague, as I say, and we looked at the students in front of us and said, oh, you know, they'll have such resilience because they'll be able to adapt and they'll be used to just cracking on and getting on with changes because they've had so many changes to deal with. And I was repeating that conversation with my husband whilst my daughters were in in the room in the kitchen. And my eldest daughter sat there and said, oh, and mummy, what does, you said a word when you were talking to daddy then, you you said a word and I don't know what it means, um, resilience. And I said, well, actually, I think you and be really resilient. And she sort of said, what do you mean? I said, well, you will be able to just adapt. You will have in your childhood to get on with a situation where you didn't quite know what was happening and it got quite scary and you've had to change the way in which your entire world has worked and actually is a skill for your future. 
it will massively help you because actually, you know, me and her dad sat there and said, well, this is the first time that we've really had to deal with anything that was hugely beyond our control and was being sort of done to us, if you like. And it was just, it was a really interesting conversation. And she totally took that away. And I really do. I genuinely think that actually the skills and the resilience that people will build will be phenomenal, but it's just getting there and it's learning to deal with it. And I think it's the adults who are probably suffering a bit more because the kids just having to crack on. And I think, yeah, they really have kept me going. They are. um, I was going to say, it's interesting because they're going to be masters of change management, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, they've been the most flexible people that will have ever happened. They'll just be absolutely brilliant. Yeah, and because your children are quite young, aren't they? Yes, they're eight and five. So they're both quite young. And I think in a way that will benefit them as we move into the future beyond the pandemic. Because I think the lasting effects, thankfully, on them may not be negative ones. And certainly the difference between them and then the students that I teach at school is quite vast. And it's interesting as the older students have really, really struggled mentally, emotionally, and it's been really sad to watch and to support. Whereas I think in a way, I'm very lucky that my children are the age they are because actually they're taking away the conversations that we have and the fact that They've had some extra time at home and some time when mummy and daddy have had to work and not been around as much, but they've still been in the same house. And I think their memories of this two year period will be very much, you know, oh, it was the time that we were at home quite a lot. I'm not too sure that it will be. And I think, that, as I say, they'll have built some really quite excellent skills from it whereas uh, my biggest concern is for those students that I teach who are that bit older who really do understand all of it and I worry about them. Yeah, I certainly, I guess, concur with you in the sense of my eldest is just about 15. And although she has just been immense all the way through this, she's had her kind of ups and downs. But the other day, only a couple of days ago, she just looked at me and just said, when is this going to stop? She said, I just want something to be normal. You know, and she was grasping at anything. And this situation now, because of the length of time all children have been alive, you know, it's quite a percentage of their life. Yeah. And she's now starting to watch TV programs and films and stuff and notice that they're not socially distancing or wonder where their masks are. And, you know, it's all now before it was a small period of time that we were all getting through together. But actually for children, it's becoming a huge percentage of their life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's massive. And actually the effects on them, it's so much that they've got to sort of take in and grasp and get on with where the understanding isn't maybe there. And I mean, we're not a family particularly that watch the news avidly or anything like that. And I think my children have seen us watch the news more in the last 18 months than they've ever seen us uh, watch the news. And it's just things like that. You know, their awareness is just so different I do have some faith for um, the next political generation, though, because actually one thing that I've become very aware of is that younger children are very politically aware now. And I think, well, I hope that will make a difference as we move forward as well. Yeah, I agree, actually, because I think that our generation, I'm not too sure that we were. I certainly wasn't. No, and I know that it was always the routine in our house. I think back to me being a teenager and I came in and we always had to watch the news at six o'clock and then following the news, I think it was about 10, 15 minutes long. That was when tea was always ready. It was like the household routine. Mum watched Neighbours. (laughs) 
and then suddenly the tea was always ready just after the news had finished. But and I, you know, I talked to my daughter about this, but partly it was because there were only four television channels at that point and there wasn't anything else on. <laughs> so there weren't the options. And my daughters can't really comprehend this. Their little heads are sort of what on earth you mean you only had children's telly for a short period on an afternoon. But it meant that to me, the news was just something I had to tolerate whilst I was waiting for tea. And it definitely was then something I, you know, I never then carried on to being somebody who read newspapers or anything like that. And it's really interesting how that has definitely reverted and changed. Like my children will be much more up with the news and the way in which they then changed the classrooms. You know, my eldest will tell me that she will go to school and they watch news round at school every day and actually I, I kind of love that it means that they are far far more aware of what's going on in the world which is great gotta love news round as well I can remember I think it was Andy Peters back in the day they let him out the broom cupboard yeah <laughs> <laughs> so tell me you kind of explained your current role but how long have you um been teaching in secondary schools oh so I started teaching in 2005 so I mean coming to my 16th year and I teach maths. I am a proper maths geek. Somebody's got to be. Uh, well, this is it. So it's been really quite fun. I started off as training teacher and then in my second year of teaching, I took charge of IT across the curriculum. And then in my third year, I got a job as a second in department. And then during that year, I then got a job as head of department. So I then became head of maths and I, was, I stayed as head of maths for quite a while. And partly the reason was that during that time, I had my eldest daughter. And it's quite interesting. You sort of, to start with, before I had kids, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, you just carry on with your career. Like, I was very career-driven. And sort of, oh, you just crack on. And then as soon as I had my eldest, I realised, no, no, time to just stand still a minute and gather the thoughts and everything else was all right. And then progressed to associate assistant principal and then assistant principal. So I've been in my current role now for about three years. I think it is maybe four. I think it's my fourth year. And yeah, it's great, but it's been brutal. And I have to say that never did it in a million years of my career, did I this time last year think that any of this would have happened. There's so many places that I want to go with this. So I want to ask you about being a working mum and the juggle of the pandemic because you have your life too. Mm. I want to ask you about the young people. Do you know you talked about the devastation and how some of them, particularly the older ones, are responding? Tay Training delivers the majority of its training to people working with people with vulnerabilities and complex needs. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in some of the pastoral work that schools are having to do with vulnerable and key working children. And I'm also, I really want to go in the direction of talking to you about the amazing people like yourself that are turning up to work each day actually turning up to work each day that they never signed up for and exactly like you've just said they never ever imagined but yet you're still doing it and you're still keeping this country running in the sense of if that education at the moment safety net that truly is how I see it I think it should be viewed as one of the emergency services at the moment because particularly for vulnerable children it will be absolutely saving their lives and so I want to go in, in all of these directions and talk to you about all of it. So I'm, I'm going to hand over to you and just let you lead with one of those topics and just tell me how you're feeling about this situation. I suppose the story starts a year ago because it's been a bit crazy. And I think in my head, 
it feels like it was a lot longer but about it was probably about a year ago a member of staff came to see me because I wasn't very well I'd got a really really horrible horrible cold and I'm never ill really I'm a bit of a got the immunity of an ox and I kind of crack on regardless I think it's all the years in in education do mean that I've just built up a brilliant immune system but I was really poorly and it just kept going going on and on and to the point where I'd had a couple of days off which again very unlike me and she came into my office and she said, have you got this Chinese flu? And I was like, I had no idea what she was on about. I said, no, I haven't got Chinese flu. She's been away. Have you been to China? Have you seen anybody from China? I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. I'll be fine. I've just got a cold. I'm sure I've just got a cold. Anyway, she sort of went on her way and I Googled it because I thought, what on earth is she on about? And it was the very start of sort of the news coming across around what was going on in Wuhan. and. It felt so quick from that point. I then, you know, sort of took weeks to get better and had this just lingering illness. And then my husband got it and my youngest daughter and we sort of spread it through the family. And then we got to the end of February and and it was like, right, come on, we're all just about there now. Let's get on with it. Didn't really think anything of it. And then about a week later, I'm sure it was, my different colleague came to see me, said, do you think they're going to close schools? "What? What? What do you mean? Do you think they're going to close schools? Again, sort of, sure, sure, we're not there yet. And then I think it was the following day that they came to see me again. And I'd obviously, by by this point, was far more clued up about what on earth was going on. And sort of just sat there and said, yeah, I think we probably will close. I think we probably will. And then there was this crazy week in that lead up to the first national lockdown, where I remember having a conveyor belt of staff making packs to send home so we had to make 1200 work packs of paper worksheets and things to send home to students and we literally had a conveyor belt they were going around in a circle picking up packs to then be able to create and then we had tables and chairs set up outside the front of school for parents to come and get them and then it was as if everything just I don't know it was very straight it just really weird I would say broke but that week when it was like, right, that's it, we're in national lockdown, you're working from home. And to start with, within education, didn't really know what, what on earth we were doing. I mean, we hadn't even used, I mean, now we're really prolific. Schools are fantastic at using things like Microsoft Teams, Zoom, Google Classroom. We hadn't used any of it. I'd never heard of Microsoft Teams or Google Classroom. Like, it just, it never crossed at my radar whatsoever. So we sort of were walking around in a bit of a daze, but then the joy of my role meant that it just completely exploded because being in charge of exams and assessment and risk assessments just meant that I was just inundated. And so from that point in March, I started just working 70 hour weeks and it just didn't stop. So we carried on and, and then halfway through, like a lot of schools, we then introduced new platforms so we went down the google classroom line like an awful lot of schools across the country others went down the zoom line and we sort of introduced a new piece of computer software halfway through a global pandemic whilst on lockdown where we couldn't really talk to staff couldn't really train properly but did our best you know again it was the first time i'd ever used microsoft teams and they did it and they were absolutely incredible And so students started getting work and then we, the pandemic sort of seemed to loosen up a little and we were able to introduce having a few more students back in school. And then the sort of summer came and that was then again a summer of working because of the joys of constant changes from the government on what was happening with the exams. And because we had both GCSE and A-level, that was an absolute nightmare. 
and then it was kick off to start sorting out what we're going to do in September you know we're all the kids are now coming back but we've got to somehow make sure that staff are kept safe and distance and how can we change the rooms around and how many students can we fit in a room now and we've got to <laughs> I remember standing outside the front of my school thinking I absolutely have no idea how 15 to 1300 children are going to wash their hands on their way into school because we've only got six sinks it was just this moment of we need more sinks and so we did like so many schools across the country we put in outside sinks still again you know it was kind of I think we've got about 18 or 20 now and I still remember standing there going 20 sinks is never going to be enough for 1300 kids to wash their hands and yet they do it it doesn't take long. They wash, they're in, they're done, they're used to it. We don't even have to monitor it anymore. You know, they just do it. But it was unbelievable to think about it at that point. As I've been listening to you, it feels like you're talking about another world. When I think of schools and I think of my time at school, you're not talking about something that's part of my frame of reference at all. So I can see and credit to you because all I can hear is you're adapting, you're adapting, you're adapting, you're adapting again. And at the beginning, you said you didn't know what was going on. You, you just kind of got on and did it, really, and followed the guidance as the guidance changed. Yeah, and that was on a daily basis. Yeah, nice and consistent, our government. Yeah. So just before we go on to kind of where we're at now, talk to me a little bit about how people were feeling back then and, and what it was like for the children. And there was a lot of saga around the exams as well, wasn't there? You know, children who had been working for years um, yeah. towards a goal that was then moved and vulnerable children that were used to coming to school for their meals. Suddenly we were in lockdown. And that first lockdown, you're right, we were all ill-prepared for it. And I think the provisions that are being put into place now are different. You know, like, even technologically, we've come on a million miles. But just tell me a little bit about how everybody was feeling and, and what the reality was like in that first lockdown. I suppose the way to describe it is it felt like... I suppose most people will resonate to this. When a fire alarm goes off and it's not planned and you really don't know why it's gone off and there's that sort of panic moment of, oh, actually, this could be really awful. What's going on? And then sort of adrenaline kicks in and sort of says, right, let's do what we've trained. We know what we're supposed to do. Let's get on with it. I think that's kind of how we felt. The students were incredible, but they were really scared really scared and it was quite interesting how as soon as sort of even the the remotest chance of the the national lockdown was coming in our attendance figures as I say like schools across the country plummeted because parents were worried and they started to get to the point where actually they're not safe to go to school we need to have them at home and that was kind of then the first sign and actually it's really unnerving to be in a classroom where normally there's 30 students in there to go down to turning up and it's a classroom of five and that's really unnerving and the students were worried and we spent quite a lot of time supporting them with there were lots of conversations within lessons I mean you know there's only so much maths that you can teach when you've got students sitting in front of you who were absolutely petrified about whether or not their family are going to die which that's where they go with it so There is no middle ground with a teenager. They took it and said, right, so there's this pandemic. They're now saying that we're not going to be able to come to school for ages. And if you get this bug, you die. And that was all they could see. They couldn't see that there was a a massive middle ground. But then I think partly that was because we just, it was so unknown. 
But teenagers have got quite a bad rap for not thinking that the virus is real and still going out and hanging out with their friends. Now, I know that's not actually my experience of my teenagers or or any that I know, actually, to be fair. But certainly when I turn on the news, that's what's shown to me. Is that your experience? I, I think there's a real divide. There are very much two camps. There's the half of the students who are just as worried as the adults are and are, you know, following the rules and really nervous about it and unsure about what's going on. And from that side of it, we have had significant uh, mental health concerns. We've had so many more students who have threatened suicide. There are so many more students who have self-harmed, who have been in crisis. And it's not just us that I know from talking to friends across all sorts of schools that unfortunately that is prolific across the sort of secondary sector. And then there's the other half who think they're immortal because teenagers do think they're immortal most of the time. And they're kind of the half that haven't listened and possibly aren't getting the message from home either, maybe. You know, the families who think it's a conspiracy and they're the ones then who've gone out and look as if they've not got care in the world. I think there always will be those sort of two sort of separate camps a little bit. And partly it's because the conversations that they'll be having at home will be very, very different from one family to the next. And, you know, for us, for example, you know, very much a comprehensive secondary school, you know, we have a complete range of students. And I would say that there are definitely students who are not having particularly productive conversations over the dinner table and that they've been told, oh, well, it's just to try and keep us in. And that's it. You know, they've gone out and spread it and not been very helpful to the rest of us, unfortunately. And sometimes that can be a sign of their vulnerability as well. And I can imagine that can be disruptive at school if you are really trying to keep to some guidance and such. And if you've got other young people that are struggling with their mental health in this situation... Just like I know as an adult, I really struggle with that divide and I've had to kind of silence some of the people that I'm connected with on social media because actually I haven't got the brain capacity to deal with their perceptions on it anymore. (laughs) So yes, I don't know why we expect it to be any different for teenagers. It's similar, but actually they just act out in a different way than we And also, if I take, say, one of my year 11 groups, for example... When we came back in September, because it was bubbles and rules were more relaxed, obviously, than they are now that we're back in national lockdown. Obviously, there were really strict rules about things like students couldn't share equipment and I couldn't, I could give them a pen, but I couldn't then get that back or I couldn't lend them a pen. And anything that was passed between, you know, a teacher and a student had to be cleaned, etc. And some of the students in the class, that wasn't a problem, but then there would be others who generally were always the one that would forget their pen, just didn't understand why. I was saying, well, I don't have any pen. I've run out and I haven't got anything to give you and I have to give it to you. (laughs) And they sort of didn't, just couldn't comprehend why the world had to be so different because it was something that they couldn't see. Um, pen, you know, in our lives, we're fortunate enough that actually a pen is usually really easy to come by. It's those small things that we might think are arbitrary or, or wouldn't matter that actually are the mic drop moments. Yeah. And especially for, you know, families who are struggling financially with things like food. And, you know, I just it's just been so sad because they've relied on coming to school to get, you know, a really decent hot meal for their child. And that's what's always been provided. And then things like the food that we've been able to provide hasn't been able to be of the same standard because we have to reduce the cleaning because of the additional rules around COVID and transmission and et cetera. 
So that's meant things like trying to not have plates and knives and forks because, as I say, reduces the quantity of cleaning, etc. that's required. But then that's had to then change the food that we're able to produce and and things like accessibility to fresh fruit and vegetables and is just it's more limited because of how it can be packaged and how long it can last for and how you can store it and the storage is had to change. I mean, I, I don't envy the kitchen staff one bit, but it's literally everything about their world. So they get on a bus, they have to wear a mask, they get off the bus with their mask on and go and wash their hands. And then they, they're allowed into their, their school. Then we now have, as again, many schools across the country, you know, school starts for them as soon as they arrive. There's no standing around at the front because we have to kind of keep them as separate as possible. So as soon as they arrive, they're straight into classrooms, which means for some of them, their day starts at 10 past eight. They're not allowed to be teenagers. You know, if you think back to that time and the amount of kind of hugging, holding hands, larking yeah. about with my friends, you know, all of that type of stuff. I mean, even during the autumn term, you know, like many schools, we didn't have the space to be able to have a different venue for each year group bubble. So that meant that we had to have a split break and lunch situation, which then meant that they could have no no outside space much. Certainly not enough outside space to run around or play games or play football, which is what they usually have done. So literally all of that's had to go. They've not been able to mix with their mates in other year groups and they've not really understood why. You're sort of saying to them, look, it's all about trying to reduce risk. And yes, we appreciate that you might sit next to them on the bus on the way into school. But then once you're here, we need to try and reduce the risk by splitting you apart for the rest of the day. And they just don't. It's a whole different ball game. Yeah, it is, as you said, it, it's like everything's changing. You know, the sand between their toes is just disappearing for them, isn't it? Yeah. And it is for all of us in a way, but at least we have a longer life to contextualise it in, I guess. Yeah, I think even so, though, the quantity of changes and the quantity of additional workload that's been added on has just been immense. And then constantly having that at the same time as being told it's got to be amazing it just isn't good. <laughs> it's just not healthy. And, you know, the fact that they sort of stopped the Ofsted inspections, they were then due to reinstate in January. I'm actually not sure where they're at now, but it was just kind of everything's got to still be done. The entire normal role's got to be done. All the normal pastoral stuff's got to be done. But then on top of that, you also need to set up your COVID test centre. You need to, which again, definitely not something that I ever thought I would say. You've got to sort out all your phone calls to vulnerable students who've not turned up to school. You've got to make sure that if they're not in school, are they getting their free school meal vouchers or their either their voucher or, the, or their delivery? Or do we have enough devices to be able to send home? And it's just two jobs. <laughs> It's just so much. It does seem very much from an outsider's perspective, actually, that the expectations have changed quite significantly. So from the first lockdown, as you've kind of um, mentioned, everybody was kind of responding, so to speak. But by the time we've come to the second lockdown, it seems from an outsider's perspective that actually lots of pressure has been absolutely piled onto the education setting yeah. and that it's becoming a little bit like the default go-to. From an educational perspective, the expectations have gone through the roof and, and that trickles down onto the children and into the families as well, which all have pressures and then, I guess, come back to you guys to say, hang on a minute as well. So can you even win, I guess? Well, this is it. I mean, honestly, this week was the first time that I've actually had to do the new version of homeschooling because we've been really fortunate that because obviously of my role, 
we have had critical worker places for our children and they've carried on going to school this time they didn't last time because we were both at home but because I'm I'm still in school all the time we've been really fortunate to get critical worker places and they've carried on and then we got the dreaded email of your daughter's been a close contact of somebody who's tested positive she now has to isolate and it was that moment I sat with her first thing in the morning and kind of said right what have school given you to come away with so she said well I've got this pack of stuff so I was like right let's let's have a look at that and then we'll have a look on the school website and we'll have a look at what else there is and so the first thing was and this is absolutely no fault of the school whatsoever but there was an admin nightmare in that I had to go through all of these sheets and put them in order of days because each one of them had the day on them of the week and the groups but it was a clearly generic pack. So I first of all had to go through and sift out the ones that weren't for her groups, then put them in order of days of the week, then work out what subject it was, because some of them weren't labelled and some of them were. And again, totally not the school's fault. I mean, I know what it's like. They've been absolutely incredible. Then I sat with her and we, we sort of said, right, you've also got some Zoom meetings. Now, bearing in mind, this is a, you know, just turned eight year old. She's, she's in year three. She's primary school. She's got Zoom meetings that they've already set up so she can have live lessons. So I had to work out what time they were, what the meetings were, etc. Then there's additional work then on the school website. So it was going to there. Did I have to print something off? No. And I think between the two of us, it probably took an hour and a half to two hours of just sifting through everything going, right, let's get you organised into a pack per day. Now, bearing in mind that, bless her, she's only not going to be in school for five days. So... I only had to sort five days out. And you're a teacher, so sorry, yeah. but you've got the magic skills that I certainly <laughs> Well, this is it. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is an administrative nightmare. I mean, I know what I'm looking at. I know what I'm trying to work out. And I'm a maths teacher. So I understand the worksheets, you know, the maths worksheets, which some of them have got information on and some of them haven't because they're not really meant to be used in this way because they're meant to be part of a lesson where a teacher tells you what to do which is exactly what they've been produced for. And again, absolutely no fault of the school whatsoever. But it totally gave me this flavour of this must be horrific for a family where they don't necessarily have those skills and then they have more than one child. Because again, my other child is still at her critical workplace. She's still in school because of the rules around contacts. So I was able to sit and just say, right, let's go through it all. Let's put you a plan together. And it just gave me this absolute, oh, a, a total insight into what it must be like. And then, you know, if it's hard for me, it must be absolutely ridiculous. And we're starting live lessons from next week. And as lots of schools have been doing, you know, kids are literally going to be plugged in from the start of their normal school day till the end. And I know lots of schools have been doing this for a long time. They're trying their best. And yet it's incredibly difficult. And every child works at a different pace. So she's came to see me, so I'd set her off with her pack and thought, brilliant, she's got Zoom call this time, Zoom call that time. She's pretty competent. She was sort of self-out. Then she came to see me about two hours later and said, I've done all my worksheets. Mommy, what do you want me to do now? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, um... Watch TV? <laughs> um, have you had a look on Bug Club? Have you had a look on and literally started reeling off random websites that I've heard about through various social media channels, desperately not going back to, mainly because we'd said to her, this is not a holiday. You have got to do your work while you're not in school. Yeah. <laughs> because I would have loved to have just gone, you want to go and put the telly on for a couple of hours because I've got loads of work to do. And you just think, oh, it's just well, I, painful. I know my, um, my daughter who 
so she's year 10 now her school is doing all live calls at the moment but it was really interesting and I can see some little positives in this in the sense of I'm not sure that children always see teachers as people and I think that this is helping them recognize the reality of it because my daughter I spoke to her on Friday and I kind of work full-time from home and then I'm popping in and out trying to relieve my guilt of the fact <laughs> they're at home homeschooling and I popped yeah. in and she said to me oh mum she said the poor English teacher we were supposed to have a zoom lesson but her three-year-old daughter has been sent home from nursery because of they've been in contact with somebody yeah. And so she, we were just starting the Zoom session and she got this call and she said, and you could just see the panic on her face. <laughs> so, oh gosh, what did she do? And she said, well, she said to everybody, right, talk to each other for five minutes. And she quickly recorded a Loom video, which I don't know if you've come across Loom, but it records the screen. And so her English teacher quickly went on to whatever system it was they were working on, recorded this Loom video going through these worksheets and things, posted this Loom video and then said, right, I'm going to get my daughter. I'll be back in about 40 minutes to see if anybody needs any help. And my daughter said, mum, for goodness sake, why did she have to do all of that? She should have just been able to go. And she literally saw kind of that panic in her face because she couldn't just go. There's expectations that teachers, teachers, nurses and other frontline professionals are like machines at the moment. You can just go on and on and on and on. Do you know? I would say that, except uh, I did break, Tammy. (laughs) Well, that's my point. There's this expectation, but it it just isn't realistic. No, it isn't. And the 70 hour weeks have had to stop because they can't carry on. They're not sustainable. And the conditions and the way in which we've been working, it was interesting talking to a friend of mine who is a doctor and she was sort of listening while I was having a bit of a rant. And she sort of said, the way in which you're having to work is worse than they treat trainee doctors who are, you know, go into a profession expecting that as a trainee, they're literally just going to be working all the time and not get a break to do X, Y, Z. And she said, and how are you expected to carry on with that? It's no wonder that you've not been well. And and, and this is the problem. It's kind of realising and spotting those signs and doing something about it before it goes too far I suppose because the expectations as you said you know your door's absolutely spot on that's exactly how it feels you know is that panic of well who comes first and it's actually really difficult to say no my family have to come first that's actually in reality incredibly hard to do because of the constraints that are then put in place And, you know, I mean, for me, because I'm very stubborn, I don't like admitting that I can't do everything. It took my body to have a physical reaction to the stress rather than me realising that I just needed to slow down a bit and sort my head out. My body took over and decided, no, you've had enough. And that was just before Christmas and forced me then to stop for a few weeks and actually that has been a blessing in disguise really because it's made me then say actually I need to be careful and I do need to make sure that you know I'm not working all the time and that actually that will benefit everybody because I'll be a better person and a better teacher while I'm at work and doing what I'm supposed to be doing if I'm well and that I'm not doing a good job if I'm not well so actually the two kind of come hand in hand. Yeah no absolutely and I think I remember the time that you're unwell and I remember my own selfish thoughts that went along along the lines of, 
oh my gosh, is she any different to me? Do you know? And, and you do, you, you look at your own life then, don't you? Because we're similar age yeah. and similar demographic and all of those type of things. And you do look at your own life. And I, I remember feeling sick to the stomach and thinking about your young girls, but also just imagining the pressure that you were under to be well, because the pandemic was still going on and you were still needed. Yeah. And that sits at the back of your mind as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's then the constant fear of, well, what am I not doing that needs to be done? And what who's missing out because I can't be there to do it? And what's being left so that when I go back, I'm still going to have to do it and then do everything else as well. And I'm going to have to catch up. And yeah, because it doesn't stop. The job just doesn't stop. And those kids don't get a second chance. And that's the thing. That's what gets you as a teacher, because... It's when you start realising that, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, it was it was really short in a way. You know, I was off work three weeks. It was genuinely, if you look at most people in their careers, I think probably even if I include those three weeks, plus any days that I've had off since I started teaching in 2005, I've probably had less days off in total than most people. Because you, you still constantly, even though, I mean, for me, as I say, it took a physical reaction for me to sort of have to slow down. And it took that moment where somebody sort of said, actually, you could die. Now, it, it wasn't that dramatic in the end, but it, for a short bit of time, it was. And it was that moment where you kind of go, I need to sort myself out and I need to not push myself to this limit. But at the same time, you kind of go in, but I've got lessons tomorrow. What subject are they not topics they need to do? And they need to do that topic because if they don't do this now, then they don't get a second chance at this. These kids have got their exams or now don't, but instead will have a different assessment. And I will be responsible for making sure that they get the grades that will give them the life chances and open the doors and get them to their next stage, whatever that may be. And it just, it doesn't stop. The, the wheel keeps on going. And so even though I'm not there, if I'm not there for only a few weeks, well, actually they will miss out. And oh, it's just, it's constant. So even though you can sort of, as I say, not be in work for whatever reason, you're still constantly thinking that all you're doing is letting them down. Because I genuinely believe that you can't go into education at all, uh, unless that's how you feel about it, because it's such a full on job. A bit like being a say, nurse or a doctor, you know, you, you sort of know what you're getting in for, but you do it because you care. And yeah, it just doesn't go away because it is their only opportunity. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services. Services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive. And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. 
So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. I guess as you're talking through there, the emotion in your voice is palpable. I can near enough feel it through the computer because you're talking about so many different things. You're talking about yourself and having that moment of recognising that you're not immortal. And I can only imagine the thoughts that would have run through your head about your young children, about your husband, about your life. I knew he was worried because he thought about phoning my parents straight away, which is a very, uh, that definitely tells you he was, <laughs> was worried. <laughs> <laughs> and then decided not to until he had more information because all they do was worry. But he considered it, which definitely tells you something because I thought yeah, that would never have crossed his mind normally. Yeah. yeah, and then you you go on to talk about, you know, and I, I completely um, concur with you here. People go into these types of professions because they care, but that also means that we're more empathetic, more compassionate, more giving and more taking of that emotion back from people as well. Do you know, I can hear how much you care about whether those young people succeed. And I can hear how much you you want to provide the very best for them. And that takes a lot in itself before you've done anything physically like prepare their lessons. Just processing that emotion and processing that emotion at a time when you know that they're, first of all, didn't know what was happening with the exams. But now actually there's additional pressure because although the exams might not be happening, it means every single piece of coursework better be good. I'm not sure whether that's better or worse. Do you know? Oh, well, this is it. I mean, <laughs> it's just, I mean, anything's got to be better than, than last summer where the week between the A-level and the GCSE results was just unbearable. And the constant changes and the algorithm that didn't work. But the difference, I suppose, was that I could hand on heart and across the country, I'm absolutely sure this is the case. I can hand on heart say that the grade that I awarded and that our school and that you know schools awarded on the whole were based on a really significant, robust set of information, you know, because they'd had a year. Yes, they'd been in lockdown since March, but they'd had the sets of mock exams. They'd had loads of practice. For us, they'd done two sets of mocks during year 11. So, you know, you've got really good information about them. And so I wasn't, as much as it was horrendous because it was constant changing of policy and constant changing of expectation and constant changing of decisions about what we were going to do about things and how we were going to do it. At no point did I feel that I didn't have enough information to make a really informed decision. Whereas for this current year 11 and year 13, that's a real concern because as you say, is swapping to just coursework enough? There isn't really any coursework. We don't have subjects with coursework anymore. You know, there are very, very few subjects that have a coursework component. The vast majority are exam only. And actually, you know, we did have a set of mock exams, like every school has done, but they were still, you know, students were isolating. There's not, you know, there will be students across the country who have been in the unfortunate position where every member of their family has ended up with COVID a week apart. So they've ended up isolating for six weeks and missed school and then had to go in or do the mock exams from home or try and do them online on a system where you've tried to convert it to a Google Doc and it doesn't quite look the same. You know, it's just not as clear cut at all for them. And you're still sort of saying, you know, and actually what we need you to do from home right now is carry on because although they've said the exams won't happen in the same way that, you know, 
there won't be any exams, but actually we're probably going to need you to do some so that we've got more information because, you know, actually I appreciate that there are families out there who don't have a device. They don't have the internet. They don't have the capacity to be able to link up to the Google Classroom. They are literally working from books and paper. Um, don't even just have the capacity to learn and process information in this way. Do you know, yeah, sitting in front right. of a computer and I know there's some brilliant live lessons, but we deliver training sessions, as you know, and all of ours have been adapted to live online learning. And we've put so much, like literally weeks and weeks of effort into ensuring that all different learning styles are met and things like that for the sessions that we've adapted down to four and a half hour sessions rather than seven hour sessions and we've had the luxury of being able to focus on that you yeah. guys don't have that that luxury that time that ability you know and the people that come along to our training sessions are generally adults that have learned in this way and mm. we can support them individually because that's what they're paying for and there's 16 of them for the day kind of thing yeah. if you've got 30 different students because you're in secondary school you're subject teachers yep. how on earth can you take the time to tailor it to each of their needs meet each of their learning styles make sure that you're following up with each bit that they don't understand Do you know i know my daughter has had to ring her friends who are better at one subject than another subject and mm. you know they're looking for ways to support each other but i just think in the whole consideration of everything there's no recognition that actually irrelevant of how brilliant you guys are. And I, and I really, truly think that actually all key working services are just being amazing at the moment. And education, you know, I just can't fault them. Do you know, I sent off the, um, after Gavin Williamson sent a tweet around saying complain to Ofsted if they're not getting the provisions, yeah. I sent off an email to Ofsted saying how amazing my daughters, both their schools are, because I truly think that what you're doing is phenomenal. But even if what you're doing is the absolute best it can possibly be, it's not going to meet the needs of every single one of those children. And so some of them are not going to achieve what they could have potentially achieved. No, and it is it is just... It's heartbreaking, really, because part of it is so dependent on the support that they're able to get from home, particularly if you're vulnerable or your your children with a special educational need. You know, I can produce a worksheet and I can put it online and I can make sure that it's on the right colour of paper on the Word document and that the font and that the text is the correct size for them to be able to read it, for example, if they've got dyslexia. And I can make sure that that's tailored for them and they're able to access it. But if they haven't got a printer or... They haven't got the resources at home to be able to see it in the correct way or on the correct colour for whatever reason, then it's not going to have the impact that it's supposed to have. And, and they're so reliant on their home situation at the moment. You know, even having a quiet place to sit and get on with it, having a table to work at. I mean, I realised, and as I say, it was our first day of homeschooling. And I realised as a family that I would say, you know, we're doing well, and very comfortable and very capable family. And yet I still looked at my daughter and she was sat with her computer in front of her and there was very little space for her to write. And I thought, oh, I've got, this is not really a desk, is it? And I, you know, and I sort of already was sort of thinking, actually, this situation isn't ideal. What can I do to support her? And there will be families out there who not only might stand there and look at and say, oh, well, this situation is not ideal, but I can't do anything about it. But there'll be families that sit there and don't even realise the situation's not ideal. 
and that's the battle that you're up against all the time yeah and also possibly some absolutely just won't realize but others will have a hundred other competing priorities do you know yeah, absolutely can I, pay my rent? can I feed my children is my job still going to be there tomorrow oh, has absolutely. my mother-in-law got covid and before you get to has my child got a desk exactly you know? and that's the thing isn't it it's, there's so much going on and yet as a school we're still then put on the pressure going do you know what you've got five lessons a day that you have to complete and they've got to be done in your normal school time please and that's it you know and I get messages from students at all times of the day now using the various computer programs that we now all use of things like my computer wasn't working miss so I've not been able to do that can I do it tomorrow and here's a screenshot because some of them are really worried that that'll be a problem then others who are sending me messages just I can't concentrate I'm finding it really hard don't know how to do this where I'm not getting input I'm getting messages of we've had a go at the work but haven't really got a clue particularly you know I mean A-level maths let's face it it's not a walk in the park and there are (laughs) it isn't and there are certain subjects you know you can't teach yourself particularly A-level maths you know it's just it's a tricky one. I can't teach myself primary school maths This is it. And I'm expecting them to watch a video and follow some slides that I've tried to put together that try and explain what's in my head. And I think they've just been incredible doing what they've done. Can I just take you back just for a moment? You said that you're responsible now for staff wellbeing and you talked a little bit about yourself. How's the rest of the team doing? They are struggling. They feel like they're not listened to and they feel like it's very unfair and that the expectations are unrealistic. And my role, I suppose, is keeping them going and giving them strategies to help. But it's really tough. And actually, it is about sort of saying, well, how can we streamline that? What can we do to support? How can you share more so that you're not starting from scratch and you're not having to do everything for yourself? And sort of forcing teams of staff to really work together, I suppose, because... Although that's always best practice, it's not the only practice, if that makes sense. And you can have a really successful team where everybody's kind of cracks on and delivers their own lessons. And actually, I know that for some teachers, they find it really hard to deliver someone else's lesson. You know, they wouldn't want a situation where somebody's given them a lesson and said, that's what you've got to teach today, because actually they need their own style and they want their own input into it. And of course, the students in front of you will be different to somebody else's group. And you want to adapt it and make sure that it's appropriate and covers all the needs that your group have got. But We are now in a situation where it's no, what can you share? Even if it's the bare bones, even if it's the, I've got these 10 PowerPoints ready, you can take them away and adapt them. It's really encouraging teams to make sure that they're doing that because there is so much then on top to sort out that they are struggling with it. And how are they, I guess, how are they managing that, the whole juggle and the whole kind of, so one of the things that I keep seeing now is that this lockdown, there's many more children going to school mm-hmm. and that this lockdown, the teachers are also expected to do the online learning. And obviously, of course, they've got their own worries and such like with regards to, um, you know, e- I say even, but this is no small thing, you know, the feeling that they're going out every day when the country's been locked down and then they're potentially going back to their own vulnerable people as well. Yeah. It's odd, actually. I feel a little bit like this lockdown has almost had a couple of week delay within it. I sort of feel a little bit like it started and people went back to how we were in maybe May and June time, where 
we started to introduce more students into school and people started to move around a little bit more because death rates, et cetera, had started to reduce and we were starting to open things back up again. And I feel a little bit like this lockdown started at that point rather than starting where it was last March. And gradually over the course of the last week or so, I think then people have realised that, no, actually, we do need to go back to last March because the death rates have continued to rise and actually nothing's reducing. And the whole point of this is to reduce and, and, and battle against this virus. So I think it's really interesting that there's been this sort of bit of a delay because you're absolutely right. You know, numbers in schools have been hugely higher than this time last year. I mean, for example, I know one school where they had maybe last year, they only had about six students in. Like, that was it. They had six. And then this last week have had 140. Wow. And I genuinely think, you know, part of that is that you've got teachers taking critical worker places because they've got to be in. So you've got teachers going in to teach teachers children, which certainly is the case, as I say, for my family. But then you've also got people who are desperately trying to be a critical worker. So pigeonholing their role into the critical worker category just so that they can carry on and regardless. And actually, I think we probably do need to maybe just take a step back a little bit and just go, do you know what? We need to go back to last March and a critical worker is only one of very few people and sort of really rein it in because there isn't the reduction in traffic. I mean, I remember last year I, we took it on a rotor and I took my turn of leading our provision and a journey that would usually take me because our provision was shared, a journey that usually to that shared provision would take me an hour and hour and a quarter normally it was a 40 minute journey because there just was no traffic on the roads. Whereas I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be the case and it would be my normal time now. And that's my biggest worry is that actually something that was supposed to be a short, sharp fix where we go, do you know what? Let's lock down till February half term and let's fix it and let's get this virus nipped in the bud a bit while we can get the vaccine introduced. Actually, I think is going to end up going on for an awful lot longer because we're not being as strict and as straight with it as we should be. I guess as somebody that is going out every day to work and doing what you can do and meeting the rules and supporting vulnerable young people and vulnerable colleagues, how does that make you feel that this lockdown, we are seeing this? It's really frustrating because I spend all day telling people to move to make sure they're two metres apart. I have to publicly apologise on behalf of all the maths teachers of the land because we've clearly done a really terrible job, Tammy, of teaching people to estimate two metres. Honestly, we've done an awful job of it because they have no idea. Two metres is so much further than you think when it's laid out. And I think this is the real difficulty because you say to somebody, well, two metres is the height of a door. So a standard door is two metres. And they look at a door and they go, yeah, yeah, I'm about two metres. But because when you look at a door, you're looking at it from eye level, you're already two-thirds of the height of the door so you don't see it as the length that it is your brain kind of messes up how high the door actually is you kind of just take the extra bit on top of your head if that makes sense <laughs> yeah. um, I'm looking and, at the door right now you do know that don't you yeah and I'll be honestly so when you're standing up and you're standing up and you're looking at a door your eye level means that when you're then estimating that the length of that your brain messes with it and says that it's only the extra bit from your eyes to the top. And so when you try and then put that and lay it down on the floor, it gets squashed, it gets, gets shortened because your brain has, has messed with the height of the door from where your eyes were. And yet, actually, if you took the door off the wall and tried to lay it down and then put that 
as a dot on the floor for people to stand in, people would think you were bonkers. You know, that's definitely not two metres. And that's been the hardest thing is sort of actually walking around constantly saying to students and staff and, you know, because everybody's liable to do it, going, that's not two metres, move away. And it's really galling because you're kind of going, look, we're doing this to try and help people. We're doing this to make sure that we all stay safe. We're doing this because we want to make sure that everybody can have their families are okay and that we're not passing this on and that we're not causing a bigger problem. But actually, then people aren't following those rules and then not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It gets really frustrating. And things like social media posts where someone's saying, oh, why can't I drive to go and have my daily exercise? You kind of go in because it defeats the object. Because when you get on the road and you get in your car, you're putting yourself at risk of then needing support from a frontline service where actually they're already on their knees and can't come and help you. And that's why you can't get in your car. And that's why you need to stay at home. And it's just it's really difficult because there's so much misinformation and so much that people don't, I think, fully understand. That means that I think, you know, even those that think they're doing their best are still causing this to not be quite the lockdown it should be or that it needs to be in order to make it as short as possible. Yeah, I hear you completely. They're just unrelenting. And I'm certainly going to stand a little bit further back now. Yeah, I'll be giving you a tape measure. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm somebody that's really conscientious about it. But looking at that door, I'm not sure I'm conscientious enough. But honestly, it's crazy, really, because it is so much further. Yeah. So tell me a couple of things, really. I guess, how long can the teachers, the education profession, how long can you continue to be kind of the pastoral lead in this way and dual and blended learning across in-house and at home? How long do you think the profession's resilience can take this extra pressure? Because at the beginning, you said, this is like no time I ever imagined. And what I'd like to do is finish off in a moment in seeing what can we do to help you be able to continue as long as you need to. But just tell me first where you think the profession's at and where you're getting the support from at the moment. I think we'll carry on as long as we need to. It's a bit like that with, I know, doctors, nurses and and the other frontline professions that you kind of go, do you know what? At the end of the day, we will do it as long as we have to. I think that along the way, we will lose people and we'll lose staff from the profession. And that will be a a rebuild when we get to a point where we are not in a national lockdown situation. But when we do get back to, in inverted commas, normal, we we are going to have to really revisit actually protocols and expectations and what can be achieved and what a working week should look like. Because actually, my biggest concern, because while it's in an emergency state, teachers are brilliant, you know, all of the colleagues that I've come across across all of the years are incredible people and they will all bat on and do what they're doing and nobody goes to work. I genuinely believe that no one goes to work to do a bad job and that they will absolutely try their best to do the best they possibly can to support the young people that they're dealing with. And every teacher that I've ever come across is like that. You know, they yes, some may be considered Ofsted style better than others, but their heart is in the right place because I say you don't go into it if it isn't. And at least if you yeah. do, you don't last very long. It's not a job um, at all, is it? It is very no, much and, um, a vocation and a commitment and yeah. passion and drive. Yeah. 
and that's where you have staff who will you know who may only do it for a year or two and then leave education once you've got past that kind of couple of years you, you're in it for the long haul you know you you know what the score is and, and they will carry on and they will bat on my biggest concern is what happens when we're able to have our normal classes back and we're in school and and all of that occurs and then it's well if a student is poorly well then you should be setting them remote lessons and if you're poorly as a member of staff for example then rather than being able in years gone by if you I don't know broke your leg and weren't in work for a week or two it would now be a case of oh well you can do your live lessons from your lounge and you can make sure that you follow your normal timetable and the students get that and actually then that rest period that the person may have needed is going to disappear and actually it's going to be well well you've got a pc at home so it's a snow day so because it's snowing we can't open the school so instead you're all just going to do it from home and you're going to make sure that you give your live lessons that way and you can just see how actually the world and the job as we know it is going to potentially become a very different job and actually we've got to be really careful about the working hours that occur there and similar to how they did with doctors where they sort of said you know what actually there's a bit of a working time directive here and we need to be really careful about what we're asking and how much time we're asking of people I think the same review is going to be required around education because the current state of play is not sustainable and the human body can't deal with it. And actually, if we want to keep a workforce of teachers who are capable and competent and good at what they're doing, then we're going to need to put different measures in place as we move forward, I think. Because what I would say is that one of my assets, for example, as a teacher is the fact that because I'm now into my 16th year of teaching maths, I am experienced, which means I can explain things in 20 different ways. And I have got all of those building blocks in behind me. And what we can't end up doing is losing the experience and ending up the workforce of only the young because they're able to cope with the long hours and don't get so tired. Because actually, that's not going to help anybody and the education of the country will fall. I'm sat here really quite speechless because I can't believe that actually what you're talking about there is the fact that in this emergency situation, everybody is pulling on every single one of their resources because they're passionate, dedicated, committed people and they're pulling on all of their resources. And you said something really poignant that was, well, we'll continue as long as we have to. And then you immediately went to this position of fear that is looking to the future. And I hadn't even, that hadn't even crossed my mind for the teaching profession that you would kind of, I guess, visualise the future in this way. And I can see exactly where your mind's going. And you're so right. There's been a misnomer anyway over the last few years of teachers work, nine till three, and they Mm. have all these long holidays. And anybody, do you know, I was a school governor for four years and it was became very clear very quickly that that is completely untrue (laughs) but what you're talking about now is the next step and actually in an emergency situation yes that adrenaline that drive that passion fuels some of us and absolutely you know we're here to talk about emotional resilience so we have to look after ourselves and each other but that that adrenaline is part of that it isn't sustainable and the fact that you're using however much of your reserves to kind of have that worry about the future is really concerning in itself I just really hope that doesn't happen because what I can see is good people leaving those teachers that transform lives those teachers that support encourage and help build the values of the younger teachers the new people in 
those with that experience, you're right. At some point, they'll go, enough is enough because I can't see the end to this. Yeah. And certainly that was how I felt in the darkest days before Christmas. That was where my head went to say, actually, maybe I can't do this anymore. And that was a frightening thing, considering what I think anybody who knows me would say is that over the years that I am a proper tough nut and I'm very stubborn and I will absolutely crack on regardless and get on with it. And that my role in life has always been to look after everybody else, make sure everyone else is all right. And for me to sort of sit there and say, actually, maybe I'm not cut out for this anymore. And maybe this is just not for me. That was a real wake up call because it's definitely then there's something wrong and something that we need to, as a society, just think about a little bit. Particularly when we're getting towards a point where we're saying, right, you know, we can start to heal. We need to then be really careful in how we look at that across all of the different sectors and professions that are out there. How do we heal? How do we look at making sure that we haven't just changed all of our expectations to make them unrealistic? Yeah, it's something that I really hope is just going to happen across the board, really. Yeah. I can only say I really hope because that's how I feel at the moment is I really hope. I don't know whether it will or not. Tell us, though, what can we do at the moment? You know, I guess society as a whole, how can we support the teaching profession to stay resilient and continue? And what are you doing internally to support each other to be able to maintain that resilience? So I suppose my plea to parents is to say, please stop complaining. Because despite the support that we get, and we do get a lot of support and and a lot of parents who are brilliant, we also still get, well, my child's been put in a group with children who aren't at the right level. And my child's been put in a group with people who are being a bit naughty or my child's been put in a group and the work hasn't been appropriate today. And it's a bit, you know, please give us a minute. That's probably my plea is, is just give us a minute. Because on a day-to-day basis, I don't know who's going to turn up staffing-wise. I don't know who's going to end up having to send me a message saying I've got to isolate because my husband's got COVID symptoms and we're waiting for a test result. Or I've got to isolate because my three-year-old tested positive. Or from a day-to-day basis, I can put as many plans and schools across the country now can put as many timetables and rotors in place as we like. But actually, on a day-to-day basis, we have no idea really who's going to turn up. And that's incredibly difficult to manage. And so my plea would be to parents, just give us a minute. If there's something that you need, if you're struggling with homeschooling, if you're struggling with the work that's been provided, if you're struggling with getting your child to engage with it, then ask us some questions, ask us for help, but give us time to help you. Give us time to reply. Give us time to remedy and fix situations. Because nothing that's going wrong is being done because we don't care or because we haven't thought about it. It's just because we've had to prioritise something else instead. So I suppose that's my plea really to parents is just (laughs) give us a moment to think. You're not asking much. You're really not asking much. (laughs) And then on top of that, I suppose it's just as we move forward, being thankful. Because actually the messages that schools do get make a massive impact you know we really do appreciate it when someone takes the time to send us a positive email or a positive tweet and it doesn't have to be a lot but it is really appreciated and I know that there's a lot of teachers out there who you know like me that they're working all hours just to try and send and reply to the messages from the students and actually when a student then replies and just said oh thanks ever so much for that that's all you need 
because that's why you've done it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I would I'd recommend any listeners that want to on the back of the tweet that Gavin Williamson sent last week about complaining to Ofsted if your provision wasn't perfect. There was a bit of a pushback from parents emailing Ofsted on inquiries at ofsted.gov.uk saying how brilliant their school was being. And so I did that and copied the reception of the school that my children go to into it. And it's not a big thing. It took me 30 seconds. But I think it's really important that where we can, we do recognise that and say thank you. Yeah. And that is really appreciated because it's those things where you think, it's just it's what you need <laughs> keeps you going it's the little things and what are you doing I guess for anybody else that's listening to this that's a teacher that's an assistant principal you've said a lot that will hopefully help people feel less alone will really resonate with people and will give people the motivation to keep going because although you have absolutely described a really really difficult and dare I say the word unprecedented time within schools you're talking from a place of passion and you're talking very kind of openly about how much these kids matter to you. So there'll be other teachers listening and there'll be other teachers in schools that don't necessarily have an assistant principal with the same perspective as you or they don't have a team around them at the moment because they are working completely virtually. So they're not hearing this from their colleagues. What are you doing to support each other? Do you know, what would you recommend? How are you supporting your colleagues and how are they supporting you? The first thing I would say is make sure that you're checking on people. So send in the, the odd email, particularly for anybody that's a line manager. One of the things that I try really hard, so I'm, I'm absolutely sure that some of the people I line manage would tell you that I forget occasionally, but one of the things that I try really hard to do is just check in and just literally send a three second email that says, how are you doing this week? Are you okay? And then catching up, making sure that at least once a week, once a fortnight, that you're on Microsoft Teams or having a little virtual meeting to see each other and have that bit of FaceTime where you can sort of say, right, is there anything you need? How are you getting on? How are your lessons going? Is everybody okay? That's the important thing, really, is just keeping it up. I think if you're somebody who is really working alone or doesn't feel like you've got a supportive leadership team, then it's things like, I know there are loads of really, really good groups on social media. I mean, I'm part of a group, I think it's Principal Nerd on Facebook. And she's a lady who's a principal in America. And it's a group of, and mostly Americans seem to be on the group. I seem to be very much in the minority as being a UK assistant principal on there. But actually, it's brilliant because daily messages will come up of, how do you deal with this? Has anybody come across this situation? What did you do? And there are loads and loads of social media outlets like that, where I'd really recommend that if you're somebody who that works for, then that's a really good place to tap into and say, well, actually, there are lots of groups on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, where you can kind of go and find other geography teachers or history teachers or people who do the same thing. And things like sharing resources. I know that a colleague, for example, had no idea how to teach a particular topic for English. And so just put onto Twitter, anybody taught this before? anyone got any tips and within about 20 minutes teachers across the land had got and sent her resources i love that that's like saving hours of her time yeah she's got another 30 things on her list that need completing and i love that yeah that's what this pandemic should be doing to us is bringing us together to support each other in this way that's lovely yeah but then i would also say as a bit of a mental health kick when you do do something like that when you've got what you need from it turn it off 
Yes. Because there's a lot of constant messages, notifications. And actually, sometimes, you know, you don't need to read everything. You don't need to respond to everybody. And actually, you do need to prioritise. So it's worth spending that time each day going, right, what do I actually have to do today? And what could wait until later in the week? And what can wait until later in the month? And naturally, that's a real key thing for all teachers, really, is kind of look and, and try and prioritise your workload quite a lot. Yeah. And you've talked so openly about the importance of boundaries so that you have time with your family. And you've talked about your husband and how actually leaning into your family in times of stress as well. Yeah. And it's easy to let those things go. And it's easy, particularly, I know colleagues who have sort of said to me, oh, I'm, I'm trying to rush bedtime with my kids so that I can carry on working. So I get home, I'm grumpy, I shout at them, I'm trying to get them into bed quickly so that I can then start work. And it's like, no, actually tell yourself off. You, you need to have your time. And at some point during the day, you need to have some time where actually you're not thinking about work, you're thinking about something else. And force yourself to have that because there will always be another day and something else will crop up and the government will change some guidance or we'll get something different that comes through that we need to do. And there'll always be the next priority that comes along, but you'll miss your kids. Yeah. I was going to say, you'll never get that bedtime back. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit further on with like my girls are nearly 15 and 12 now. And I remember somebody saying to me, do you know, the days are long, but the years are short. And me kind of rolling my eyes and thinking, whatever. Seriously, <laughs> I can now say, do you know, the days are no longer long. Yeah. The days are short and the years are shorter. And they're still kids. One of my big fears is the fact that I'm going to blink and I'm going to have missed it. Those boundaries are so important because that balance for your own mental health, you know, the guilt that comes along with, if you're a compassionate person who's chosen to work in education, you're not going to cope very well with the guilt that will come along with rushing your kids' bedtime and family time, et cetera, as well. And it is, you know, all of this around the pandemic really has made kids have to grow up quicker. They've had to adapt. And it, as I say, it kind of dawned on me as part of this whole homeschooling with my eldest, who has only just turned eight, was the fact that I set her off and said, right, here's the Zoom meeting ID and here's the password. And she did it. She didn't need me sitting next to her, putting in this passcode so that she knows exactly what she's doing to get her Zoom meeting online. <laughs> I have and, no doubt. I know your eldest. <laughs> but that was more, it was so enlightening for me thinking, well, I didn't have a mobile phone till I was 16. And we didn't use computers till I was about 14. And I was teaching the teacher because I happened to have a computer. I was lucky and had a computer at home. So I was learning how to use Ami Pro at home and then teaching the teacher in the next lesson. And then he taught the rest of the class the lesson after because that was the only way to do it. It wasn't his fault. And then I look at her and the way in which they've had to just get on with it, you know, and they, they are growing up a lot quicker than they would have done. So blink and you'll miss it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. That That's our warning. I guess to finish off, I want to kind of focus in and just say, first of all, a big thank you to you for giving up your time for um, what's turned into a really bonus podcast, extra long session with so much really useful, insightful, interesting, and also devastating and enlightening and fulfilling you know all of that together and if I just whilst recording this podcast with you and feeling all of those emotions just hats off to every single person in in teaching and and elsewhere that are going about their day every single day for the benefit of everybody else within society 
but this is your Saturday morning that you've given up. And I know that you've given it up so that you can share this, hopefully, with other teachers so they feel less alone. And I know that we picked the perfect time where your girls are doing Zoom dance classes and my girls are doing Zoom kickboxing dances. So we don't have to feel any guilt around that. But I guess my message is be kind to yourselves as well. Do you know, have those boundaries that you've talked about. But also if you are, and you've said a couple of times about how strong and how stubborn you are. And, and I know from knowing you how high your standards are. Do you know, you are a perfectionist in what you do because you want the very best for the kids that you work with. Yes. At this point, those standards need to lower because we need to have a balance of kindness, ability and and doing our best and recognising that actually our best is good enough. It really is good enough. Our standards can't be the same as they might have been 12 months ago because the land that we're standing on is changing continually. Absolutely. I guess the last thing to say is I don't know whether all schools do have it. I don't know whether your schools have it, but I know that lots of organisations have employee assistance programmes I know that we often recommend, you know, reaching out for medical support and things like that. And I know people are even more reluctant to do that because the NHS is under pressure as well. But if you don't look after yourself, you really can't look after anybody else either. No, that's true. And the vast majority of schools do have an employee assistance telephone number and they will have a, I would say almost every school will have some form of employee assistance and they will also be able to tap into occupational health. And they are there for you and they are there to support. Now more than ever, it is available. And if you don't know what the number is, then there will be somebody in the school that does. And it isn't a failing. And that's, I think, one of the things that I've had to tell myself as well. It's not a failing to have to ask for help. And actually doing that and doing it at a point where you can still access that help without having gone so far that it's caused a really big problem is so much better. And I would encourage anybody who needs any form of support, even if it's just a conversation or somebody to just listen to, to seek that from within their school, because there will be processes in place. It may just be that unless you've actually been in that situation up until now, you may just not have known about it. Yeah, brilliant. I think we'll finish off this podcast with me kind of, I guess, reiterating what you just said there about you said that you had to tell yourself that it wasn't a weakness. It absolutely isn't. If anything, it's the biggest strength you can have and it will be what keeps you going and keeps you managing and hopefully keeps you having that balance. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. I've taken up far more than I expected to, but there was literally no point that I wanted to stop you. Is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners just as kind of your um, final thoughts, final words of wisdom? You're not on your own. And actually, everybody really is feeling the same. And a stronger person as you might think you are or, or want to be. Actually, we really are living in an inconceivable situation. And everybody's allowed to feel the emotions that they have, which may be different or new or unexpected. Give yourself a minute, take a bit of time and make sure that your priorities work. And if you feel as if you're doing too many hours or you feel as if you can't carry on, then take that as a warning sign and do something about it. Have that conversation with your line manager, have that conversation with your partner, look at what's taking up that time and see if there's any way that you can readjust it and change it. What is it that's causing you that stress? 
I was able to have some time where I was able to think very carefully about what was causing me the biggest stress. And actually, it was little things. It was really little things that I was able to control and I was able to do something about and I was able to remove as a source of stress. And I just couldn't see it when I was full and within this situation where my head had taken everything out of proportion. And so my my tip would be that, you know, sitting down, it's valuable, really valuable time to sit down with a cup of tea and a biscuit and go, right, what causes me the biggest element of stress in this at the moment? What causes me a lot of time? What causes me to feel under pressure? And what could I potentially do about it before it gets too far? Because actually we are in control of an awful lot more than we think we are. And actually, as a teacher, you don't have to create if, if your stress is from lessons. Well, what can you do? Who can you talk to to share resources? How can you get those resources from somewhere else? If your stress is around the online lessons because you struggle with the technology. OK, who do you ask to help you? Do IT know that your laptop at home is rubbish and you're really struggling with it? Do you need to ask for some support to get a new one from school? And I think sitting down and just thinking about that list of, right, what can I now do? Well, honestly, it'll be invaluable. I love the fact that you've finished off as a maths teacher with a little bit of an analysis, problem solving, and then an action plan for the future. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, how many outcomes work. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast today. We really hope you found it enjoyable and useful. Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, all the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember... Be kind to yourself, it makes all the difference.